Welcome to Conversations in Confidence, where you get a front row seat to learn the insider tips, tricks, and insights to help you win the mental game of music. So, without further ado, please take your seat and welcome your host, Paul Crick, the Performance Confidence Coach. Hello and welcome. Thanks for downloading or streaming this episode of Conversations in Confidence. Having had a couple of months hiatus, it's really good to be back in the flow of putting these podcasts together. I'm an avid reader and keen to keep an eye out for the latest books and articles on the subjects of stage fright and music performance anxiety, just to find out what the latest thinking and insights are on how to work with this topic. My guest this time around returned to piano playing later in life after a 30-year break and discovered that playing in public was a challenge. So much so, she ended up writing a book about her own diligent search to find a way to overcome her music performance anxiety. The result was her book, Playing Scared, A History and Memoir of Stage Fright, published by Bloomsbury earlier this year. Some of her insights are a combination of laugh out loud, for example, find out who is the first person to suffer from stage fright, and also poignant, as she comes to terms with her own inhibitions. Having searched out a range of therapies and world experts, my guest finally puts together her own unique approach to overcoming her performing challenges that enabled her to finally enjoy playing music in front of others. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with my guest today, Sarah Solovich. So my guest this episode is journalist and author, Sarah Solovich. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. Fine. Thank you for taking time out to come and talk to me on the podcast. And we're going to talk about your book, Playing Scared, History and Memoir of Stage Fright, which I've just finished. And it's fabulous. Absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed reading it. What I liked about it, we were just saying before before we started, was the fact that you went on quite a search. And as someone who suffers from music performance anxiety myself, it's funny how we do that, isn't it? What what drew you into the search for sort of curing it? Well, I went back to the piano when I was 49, after really abandoning it for about 30 years. Hmm. And I just quickly became so immersed and almost obsessive about it. You know, every single moment that I had, you know, available, I was, you know, practicing and just found myself becoming more and more immersed. And after a few years of this, I realized that I was investing so much time and effort into practicing and bringing myself up to a certain level that I could feel good about. And yet I wasn't able to perform, not even for a few people, because it was as if, you know, my, when I left the piano at 19 years old, I had a lot of stage fright. But when I went back 30 years later, it was as intact and as strong as ever. And so I realized that this was something that had just followed me throughout my life. And there was no point in continuing the piano if I couldn't at least address this part of it that was having really a, a very deleterious effect on me. Now, I think what's amazing is, and, and people may not understand this, but you've conquered a lot of other fears, haven't you? So, you know, you, the, the traditional I thing. I think I've really been 
afraid of many other things. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a newspaper reporter for years and I loved being on deadline. I was somehow always able to focus through, you know, the noise of the newsroom and the phones ringing and the people calling and forth to one another. And I always made my deadlines. And in terms of, you know, other kinds of performances, for instance, talking in front of people, that's not really something that bothers me. My fear is very specific to the piano. It's almost like a piano phobia, I imagine you could call it. Well, it's interesting because there is, if you read the the DSM manual, DSM-5, there's actually no specific pathology for this. You know, some people call it a social phobia, some people call it stage fright, some people call it something else. And it's very unique, isn't it, to, to each individual. When you were talking to other people and other players, did you discover that there was some common thread in sort of this music performance anxiety stage fright? Or did you find that it was unique whoever you talked to? I think among classical musicians, it often is tied to a kind of evaluative, judgmental kind of way of being, of themselves being judged when they were young. For me, certainly, it was being, you know, plunged into these competitions having adjudicators listening to me, it was really clear that I was being judged. Oftentimes, there's also a parental component to it of a, you know, a very, not necessarily a harsh, but a very demanding, you know, parental component of, you know, wanting. And and I once heard of a, a violinist who said that every time she picked up her violin, what she really heard was her father's voice and not even the music that she was playing. This was a really excellent violinist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's quite common to many of our, of us classical musicians. So you went on quite a journey in terms of looking for ways to deal with this. Tell us a little bit about where you started and some of the things that you came across. Well, one of the first things I did was look for a teacher who I is really going to support me and care about me and be engaged in this journey. And I auditioned for five or six teachers before I found the one that I felt that I really could trust. I wanted somebody who would push me and expect the most from me and have very high demands, and yet felt I, I would feel like, you know, always expected and believed in me. So that was integral. The next thing I did was coach. I found one in a psychologist, a psychologist who is on the faculty of Juilliard School in New York. Mm -hmm. And we would Skype every week. And he had me, you know, the first thing he had me do was take an inventory of about 100 questions regarding my kind of ideas of performance. And this wasn't kind of classical psychology at all. It wasn't like, me, you know, like dredging up, you know, your childhood memories and how bad, you know, your parents were or anything like that. It was really very kind of, you know, cognitive behavior approach to treating your anxieties, my anxieties at the piano. And I worked with him for months, real useful. But then, in addition, what I thought was really helpful was to just do it. 
you know, the, the what they call exposure therapy. Yeah. And he was actually pretty helpful in, you know, getting me on that path as well, making me realize that this was something I had to stop avoiding because given my brothers, I would always, you know, avoid the, you know, any, any chance to perform in front of people. Oftentimes I would invite people over for dinner and I would say to my husband well when they come over I'm going to play for them and then they come over and I would just ignore it and not do that at all <laughs> so I began going instead one of the things that I, I didn't realize how much this figured in my journey until it was all over but I began going to an airport about 45 minutes away from me the San Jose airport in California. And I, they have a piano there right outside of the baggage claim area. And I would sit at this piano It was a rinky dinky little piano. A lot of the keys are kind of quasi missing and it was, you know, not a great piano to play in, but that had no, that didn't matter to me at all. And I would just sit there and lay my music out on the music rack and play for 20 minutes or half an hour, kind of go through my repertoire, whatever I was working on, and then just stand up and leave. I would do that about every 10 days to two weeks. That was incredibly helpful because people weren't paying attention. Nobody was judging me. People weren't listening. They were walking by, chatting on their cell phones, you know, figuring out what their schedules were, yelling at their kids. I was, you know, like the least of their interests. And occasionally somebody would stop and listen to me or, you know, be between flights and have a cup of coffee and sit down and pay attention. But for the most part, it was just the noise of the airport. It was it was a very kind of liberating experience mm -hmm. to be there. And from there, I started inviting people to my house in like specifically to hear me, telling them that they were coming to listen to me. And I'd have groups of eight to 12 people usually come by in the evening and I would play for half an hour and then we would go and, you know, drink wine and have dessert. Mm -hmm. And I did that every few weeks on top of it as I was preparing. And it all was leading up to this big performance. When I first began this, I have to say, I thought there was going to be one just big performance. And I would kind of grit my teeth and get through it and play as perfectly as I possibly could. And what I began to realize was that if I had just one performance, it was like putting your, all your eggs in one basket, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would just have, it, it would have been a disaster. So instead I had these little performances and then I had smaller recitals leading up to it in kind of quasi public places like the local library. And then I had my big performance. Where was your big performance? It was at a church hall. Uh -huh. I rented it was actually a very nice church hall. It's there's a chamber music group that rents it out, and it's where a lot of the concerts and you know like local professional musicians play in. And they have a really good Yamaha grand piano, mm -hmm. and it's a very you know nice setting. Mm -hmm. And so I rented the place and had about sixty people who came and attended. Well, bravo is what I have to say there because that's. That's quite some pressure you put yourself under. So not only bravo for the book, but bravo for the completing the performance. I'm wondering, of all the things you learned and researched into, what was the thing that surprised you the most? Well, I think just the nature of stage fright and how it kind of comes back and forth. And it's like kind of going in and out of a door. And, you know, just what one man, a pianist, told me, 
and he has fought stage fright all his life, was that, you know, he would find something that would help. And then he thought that that was the answer. For instance, on one occasion, he told a joke to the stagehands right before he went on stage and they laughed and he felt really in control and went on stage and performed really well. The next time he told a joke and it didn't work at all. Oh, and no. so, you know, that, that belief that, that you're going to find one answer and there really isn't one answer. And you're dealing with something that's such a deeply ingrained fear that it's, you know, it, it just requires being really flexible and the will and being willing to address it on a regular basis and knowing that sometimes you're going to fail and being okay with that. That's hard. <laughs> it's not fun. So I'm wondering, what's the next challenge for you performance-wise? Are you stepping it up or are you just comfortable with where you're at? I'm not sure I'm going to step it up beyond what I did. Because after all, you know, I'm you know too old in my you know in life to become, you know, a great concert pianist. But I realized that I do enjoy sharing music with, with people that I enjoy it. I also like having the goal of working towards something. So for instance, in a couple of weeks, I'm playing in an, I'm giving another recital and it'll be for about 50 people. And it's, you know, at the local library and it's something that I'm just excited by, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm sure I'm, there's some level of nervous, but there's an interesting study that says that when you approach some kind of performance like this, what you should be saying to yourself is not, well, obviously I'm not, not, I'm, I'm nervous. That's really damaging, but you also don't want to be calm. So what you want to say to yourself is I'm excited, or at least that's what I say to myself now. I'm so excited. And I say that to myself aloud. And that's one of, you know, I referred to all these various things that I do. It's one of the many things that I do now in advance of going into recital. Talk about your experiences with working with some of the technology, because you had a go at uh, biofeedback, didn't you? I did. And I'm not sure that really helped me so much. Mm -hmm. I, I found that I wasn't even sure about the results that I was seeing in the equipment. It just seemed to indicate, you know, like just these kind of scattershot brain waves. I did find that when I breathed in a very deep and regular way as I was playing while attached to this, you know, kind of biofeedback like machine, that that steadied my brain waves and that maintained, you know, kind of a, a real consistency, which was very useful. So certainly that it showed me how the importance, the power of breathing focus, like now practicing focus has become really an incredibly important tool. You know, I remember when I was a girl and I would go into these, you know, competitions and I was preparing for a recital and, or a competition. And a lot of times as I was practicing, I would imagine the adjudicator, or I would imagine, you know, like, you know, a hostel or, you know, an audience that, you know, of competitors who didn't necessarily want my best. Right. And so I thought that somehow by imagining that if I could play through those negative feelings or thoughts that somehow I would be able to steal myself and then, you know, just play well when it actually happened. What I now realize is that what I want to do is just 
totally practice focus. It's like meditation, you know, sitting there so that, you know, at the piano, so that I'm no longer thinking about anything else besides the music and breathing and really just focusing pure and simple it becomes a very different kind of practice yes and as a as a a yoga practitioner you're obviously experienced at learning to divide your attention between the movement of the body and controlling the breath right and bringing them all to bring them together creating that union Yes. So talk to me a little bit about creating that union, because I think there is something, one of the things I discovered, I did some work with someone who is an expert in Qigong and Tai Chi. And one of the things I discovered was this breath and connection was absolutely critical to being able to almost come out of your shell and say, here I am naked, completely comfortable with that. And this is me. And here I am performing. So talk a little bit about that mind-body connection, if you can, what that feels like, you know, what what does that conjure up for you? What pictures in your head does that, that create, if any? I guess I always think about just having this really kind of deep centeredness in my core and just kind of thinking of a lot about my core as I'm sitting at the piano, as I'm, you know, when, when I first sit down on the bench, kind of getting that, that feeling of just sitting in yoga, you know, where, you know, sometimes we're urged as, as we, when we sit down at the beginning of a, of a class to just kind of pull our, you know, kind of thighs away and feel our sitting bones on the floor and, just and having this kind of and starting to think about all the parts of the body mm-hmm. as they relate to one another and also feeling like you know my arms are just kind of giving some weight to my hands and just being really kind of just just thinking so much about the feeling of the fingers on the keys and just be, be becoming aware mm-hmm. you know on in a very physical way mm-hmm of yeah. everything that's happening and then trying to bring my breath into that as well. So it's just this constant loop, right. Of, you know, thinking, and I mean, and, and then at the same time, you know, there's the music itself, but if, you know, when I close my eyes at the piano, it's what really allows me then to enter into that, you know, kind of deepest part of me. So if you were to go back now to your, um, I don't know, your teenage self as you were growing up, what would you say to your younger self knowing what you know now? <laughs> wow, that's a good question. Um, I think the first thing that I would say is that it wasn't that I can say no to competition. That it didn't even occur to me that I could could say it. I mean, I was just like on on a, on the rails. I was on a you know like on uh, on a train track that was going one way, and I couldn't pull myself off it. And no, it didn't occur to anybody. I think that I didn't have to do this. It was just the way that things were, and I just assumed that you know, if I was going to play the piano, this was what I had to do, that there wasn't anything individualistic in some way about it. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you play Bach, I mean, it's like, there's only in some ways, you know, it's like nobody plays Bach with the pedal, you know, like you have to be, do it your, you know, the way that your teacher has commanded you to, you know, to play it. I think that that's the first thing I would say. You don't have to do it this way. Do do you want to do it at all? And if you want to do it, how do you want to make it yours and not your mother's and not your teacher's, but this is your activity. 
I think that's great advice. Sarah, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you and find out more about the book, what's the best way to do that? They can email me on my, you know, go to my website, which is sarasolo.com. And my contact is there. And I'd be happy to answer questions. I love hearing from readers. That's great. Well, I wish you well for your next performance. Break a leg, as they say. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for being part of today. Nice talking to you. The thing I love about Sarah is both her curiosity and her determination to find a particular way of dealing with and eventually overcoming her music performance anxiety. It's helped her find a relationship with performing music that she's now comfortable with. I also loved her persistence and willingness to be vulnerable in finding a strategy that worked for her. Her decision to take her music to the airport and perform in the terminal building to help her build the experience of feeling confident is just brilliant. I've done similar things myself, and I know this kind of approach really works. Eventually, there's no escaping the fact that becoming more confident in performing for the public means you actually have to do it. The airport strategy is a less intense experience of performing in front of others than sitting in front of an audition panel. The consequences of wrong notes or memory lapses are relatively insignificant by comparison, and no one is judging you. I highly recommend it. So, I'm curious, what approaches have you used to help you build confidence in performing in public, similar to the airport strategy? Do let me know in the show notes, comments section on my website. Just have a look under the blog menu to find the show notes for this conversation with Sarah. Well, that's all we've got time for this time. If you liked what you heard, please do mouse over to iTunes and leave me some feedback and comments. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like to hear more of. If you have any suggestions for other guests you'd like me to interview, then please do let me know. Until next time, take care. Bye for now. Well, that wraps up another episode of Conversations in Confidence. Tune in next Monday for more tips, tricks and insights with Paul Crick, the performance confidence coach.